You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Pittsburgh's Major League Baseball team, the Pirates, got their nickname in a most unusual manner. During the 1880 baseball season, the team reportedly stole a popular and talented player from their crosstown rivals, the Philadelphia Phillies. Pittsburgh showed no remorse whatsoever for having pirated the player. And as a result, the local newspaper called the Pittsburgh team a bunch of pirates. Well, the inflammatory nickname stuck and eventually became official. The pirates became the pirates because they were a bunch of pirates. In the Gospels, we're told that Jesus had 12 followers, 12 players on his team that he had set apart for special attention and for a special mission. Today, we call those 12 men the disciples. When you hear the term, you think of Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew and Thomas, etc., etc. But before these men came to be known as the disciples, understand they were actually disciples. Like the pirates, before the word became a noun describing a group of people, it was first a verb describing the actions of those people. The disciples first became known as the disciples because they were actually disciples. The Greek word translated disciple means a learner or a student or a follower. A disciple is an undergrad in the school of Christ. He or she is anyone who commits themselves to learn of and to follow our Lord Jesus. A disciple isn't just a member of an elite group of first century Christians. It's anyone who follows Jesus and patterns his or her life after the example of our living Lord. For the master is still on the move. Today, Jesus still travels down roads and trails and pathways, not just in Galilee and Jerusalem, but in Stone Mountain, in Lilburn, in Loganville. The Jesus movement marches on. And we've been recruited to follow him and learn of him. Jesus wants us to deepen our understanding of him, to watch his ways, to take our cues from him. Jesus wants to pass on us to pass on our perspective and our values to those around us. He intends for us to go out into our world, carrying out his heartbeat and carrying on his mission. With Peter, James, John, and the others, Jesus turned aimless men into men on a mission. We call them disciples. And that's what he wants us to do as well. But our job is not just to be a disciple. We're also called on to make disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, we find a passage of scripture commonly known as the Great Commission. Matthew records some of the risen Christ's final words. And I love how he positions this account at the end of his gospel. It's as if he wants these words ringing in our ears 
until the end of time. Matthew writes in verse 16, he says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus had been crucified. He'd been risen from the dead. And now he appeared to his disciples. But this whirlwind of revelation had occurred in Jerusalem. Jesus now sends them into Galilee and for a good purpose. He sends them to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Galilee was the site of much of Jesus' early teaching and training of these disciples. This is where they first followed him and became disciples in the truest sense of the word. And they weren't just sent to Galilee, but to an appointed mountain. Now, I have no proof of it, but it's my personal hunch that this mountain was what we call today the Arbel. It's one of our favorite places to visit whenever we tour Israel. We always go to the top of the Arbel. Mount Arbel is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a colossal cliff that juts out over the lake and it overlooks places like Magdala and Gennesaret and Tiberias and the Mount of Beatitudes and Capernaum. All familiar names because they were all places where Jesus worked so many of his miracles and uttered so much of his teaching. See, I believe in sending these men to Galilee, Jesus was taking them back to their old stomping ground, so to speak to the place where he had first discipled these disciples. He was reminding them of the three and a half years of training they had received and the lessons that they had learned while traveling with him up and down the Galilean coast. And, against, and it's against this backdrop of their discipleship that Jesus informs his students that the time has come for them to also become teachers. His disciples are now to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And this is not only Jesus' word to the original disciples, it's his command to all future disciples, including me and you. We're not just disciples, friends, but we're also called to disciple others. You know, many Christians have a shallow understanding of this great commission. They get that Jesus has called us to go into all the world and win people to himself. But that was only part of the order. The goal is more than just conversions. It's growth and maturity and even usefulness. To just go out and get them saved is to stop short. Jesus is far more, his desire is far more than decisions. It's disciples. Notice how Jesus here describes making disciples. It involves baptizing, which implies following through on your commitment. A person who's baptized locks in and goes public with their faith. Making disciples also involves teaching. 
or conveying information, instilling proper attitudes. It involves moving on and growing deeper in your faith. Thus, discipleship is not just about sitting still spiritually. It's about both locking in and going public with my faith, as well as moving forward and going deeper. Years ago, Time Magazine reported on a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade. One year after the crusade, they went back and they surveyed the folks who had responded to the invitation and had committed their life to Christ. Sadly, only 15% of those people had become active church members. Now, I'm not knocking Billy Graham. We should be thankful for the 15%. But the stats point to a problem. It's easier to get decisions than it is to make disciples. I can talk to a person on the street for five minutes and lead them in the sinner's prayer. Conversion can happen in a minute, but discipleship takes months and years. It involves an expense of time and commitment. When I lead a person to Christ or when I come across a new believer, my responsibility doesn't just stop with a pat on the back. Far from it. I'm just getting started. You and I have been called by God to nurture and to teach and to encourage and to lead new believers into usefulness. Our job is to turn new believers into mature believers. And this is especially true if nowhere else but with our wife and kids. Some of you younger dads don't just think that because your child accepts Christ and gets baptized, your spiritual obligation is over. Your job as the man in the family is to turn your family into Jesus followers. Certainly the world today needs evangelists and preachers who can speak to thousands and move the masses. But I'm convinced that far more important are individual dads and husbands and common men who invest spiritually in the lives of the other brothers in their church. People who get involved in their neighborhood and in their workplace and point others to Jesus. The world will be one to Christ, not a thousand at a time, but one by one. Let's say you're an outstanding soul winner. Every day you win three people to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be great? That's over a thousand people a year. And let's say for 15 years you labor and build a wonderful church of 15,000 committed saints. That's good, but here's better. Let's say you lead to Christ and disciple just three people in that first year. But you do a good job of it. And you help transform those three into committed disciples that have the same desire as you. And that's to go and to disciple others. So that the next year, each of your three disciples goes out and disciples three more. And then on and on and on this goes year after year. Did you know that in 15 years, you won't have a church of 15,000 committed believers, but of 15 million? It's the marvel of multiplication. And this is why I'm not as interested in growing a church with lots of people as I am in growing a disciple-making church. That's what we need to be. Paul had this strategy in mind when he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the things that you have heard from me, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
It was impossible for Paul to win the world for Christ all by himself. But he set off a chain reaction. One by one by one, this world can be won. This was also Jesus' strategy. Study his ministry and you'll discover that in the beginning, Jesus spoke to the crowds. But as time went on, he spent less and less time with the multitudes and more and more time with his disciples. Robert Coleman writes, Jesus spent increasingly more time training the 12 and increasingly less time ministering to the masses. Jesus' time on earth was relatively short, but his impact on earth has been enormous and long-lasting. And the reason for his continuing influence is the direct result of what he implanted and cultivated in the lives of his disciples and what they in turn passed all the way down to us. And I, for one, am glad that Jesus chose to win the world one person at a time. Most of us don't have the ability or the courage to stand and command the attention of thousands. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 28 that we're to go into all the nations and we get intimidated. It's important we remember that all nations means one national at a time. The world will be one, one at a time. Reminds me of the little boy who walked out onto the seashore It was after a violent hurricane. The shore was covered with thousands upon thousands of starfish that had washed up on the beach and were now stranded. Soon they would dry out and they would die in the hot sun. That's why the little boy frantically started tossing the starfish back into the sea one at a time. A cynical old man approached him and scoffed at him. He said, hey kid, you'll never get all those starfish back into the water. Can't you see you'll never make a difference? There are just too many. That's when the young boy, he held up a single starfish. He pointed it at the old man. And then he tossed it into the water as he said, It might be true that I'll never get all the starfish back into the water, but I can certainly make a difference to one. And here's the moral of the story. You and I will never win the world to Christ, but we can all win one. We can share God's love with one person until they come to the Savior. Then we can take that baby believer under our wing and feed them and bathe them and burp them and change them and help them grow into maturity. We can make disciples. Jesus brought his 12 disciples back to the place where they had been discipled. And he challenged them to pass on the baton. He commanded them to take what they had learned And make a new generation of disciples. He took them to the scene of their discipleship to remind them of how he had discipled them. And there has never been a better discipler of men than our Lord Jesus. Thus it's important that we pattern our efforts after his. And when you examine Jesus' discipleship strategy, one passage stands out. In Matthew chapter 11... Verses 28 through 30. Hopefully you got a finger stuck there. Jesus said to his disciples there, those who followed him, Jesus said in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice how Jesus-style discipleship works. He calls to us, come to me, yoke to me, learn of me. And in these three commands, he makes three offers to us. He offers accessibility to us. Come to me. He offers accountability. Yoke with me. And then he offers activity. Learn of me. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm opening myself up to you. I'm giving you my time and attention. I'm becoming accessible. So come to me. Then he's saying, I'm committing myself to you. I'm yoking my life to yours and taking on the responsibility of your welfare. I'm not going to let you go. So yoke yourself to me. And finally, he says, I'm going to be active in your dealings. I'm going to teach you of life. I'm going to reveal my will and thoughts and intentions. So learn of me. And what Jesus promises in discipling us we should be ready to give those to whom we disciple accessibility, accountability, and our activity. We need to say to them, come and yoke and learn. As someone said of being a disciple, it takes one to make one, and indeed it does. As I come to Jesus, as I yoke to Jesus, as I learn from Jesus, I make myself accessible to other brothers and I take on accountability in relationships with them and then I become active in their lives as I seek their activity in mine. The first step in being a disciple of Jesus and in discipling others is accessibility. Openness and time and relationship and honesty are essentials. None of us can follow the Lord unless we drop the walls that we put up around our hearts and unless we open ourselves up to him. It's a requirement. And neither can we disciple others if we're not willing to share ourselves and our time with them. You know, some of us are pretty stingy with our free time. Why be bothered with a brother? But if we're going to engage in discipleship, we have to be willing to sacrifice some of our privacy and our personal time and become accessible to other people. For three and a half years, Jesus lived with his disciples. They ate together. They traveled together. They slept around the campfire together. Jesus was accessible. You know, it's interesting. On a Galilean mountaintop, our Lord gave his disciples the Great Commission and it was also on that mountain, perhaps the very same mountain, where his relationship with his disciples began. Back in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we're told, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12. Notice that they might be with him. Did you hear that? What was his purpose in calling them? That they might be with him. From the beginning, it was all about fellowship and togetherness and withness. Jesus discipled his men just by being with them. And the same should be happening with us. 
To disciple another brother, it's vital that we simply be with them, that we do life together, that we walk through life together. We need to give other people proximity to our lives, to how we make decisions and handle conflicts and face obstacles and deal with pressures and order our family life and treat our neighbors. So much of what we learn about the Christian life is caught more so than taught. We learn so much by example. This is how most of us learn to pray, wasn't it? By listening to other people pray. This is how we learn to witness or study our Bible, by hanging out with an older believer and watching them do it themselves. This was hammered home to me one day when my youngest son, Mac, was three years old. That spring, we had spent all of our time at the ballpark. He, he had been to the ballpark every single night watching his three older siblings play in their respective little league teams. I thought he was being neglected, quite frankly, and so I decided to give him his turn. He and Dad decided we were going to go play ball one night, just us, just me and Mac. Well, when we got to the field, I took all of the equipment out of the car, the helmets and the bats and the catcher's gear and the gloves, and I put it all in the dugout. Well, Mac took a few minutes to organize the equipment, and then he ran out onto the field, took his position. At first, I didn't know what he was doing. He would hit a little, and then he'd run in, and he'd put the catcher's gear on, and then he'd take the catcher's gear off, and he'd put his helmet on, and he'd hit some more, and then he'd get his glove, and he'd run back onto the field. Finally, it hit me. My son was acting out his own baseball game. He was emulating what he had been watching at the ballpark through his three older siblings. He would go to the on-deck circle, and he'd wait his turn. Just he and I there in the ballpark. It was just he and I. But he'd go to the on-deck circle, and he'd wait his turn. Then he'd sit on the bench. Between innings, he'd go outside the fence to warm up. And when it came time for us to leave, no joke, I bundled up the equipment. I headed out of the gate. When he yelled for me to return, he stuck his hand out, and he motioned for me to do the same. And again, at first, I didn't have any idea what he was doing until it dawned on me. His imaginary team was huddling up, and we were all putting our hands together before we left. The kid was just three. He had never played organized baseball, and no one had ever taught him the nuances of the game. Most of the time at the ballpark, I didn't even think he was watching. He would just run around and get into trouble. But through access... And exposure and osmosis, he had assimilated more than most kids learn when they play. It hammered home to me the power and potential of exposure to the right example. And this is how discipleship works. You let a younger believer in on your relationship with God. And they learn by watching you, by listening to you. By seeing how you handle situations, access is the key component. Well, the second step in being and making disciples is accountability. We need to be willing to make ourselves accountable to other brothers and love them enough to hold them accountable in return. Like two animals harnessed in the same yoke, real discipleship involves a binding commitment to one another. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus used an idiom packed with meaning. 
especially for this agrarian society to whom he was speaking. He invited them to take my yoke upon you. A yoke was a wooden harness that forced two animals to move in tandem and to work together to plow the field and to pull the plow across the field. The yoke was constructed in such a way that the weight was shifted more onto the older, mature, more experienced ox. He worked harder while the younger ox sort of came along for the ride. But both animals were part of the relationship and they were responsible to each other. As a disciple of Jesus, I learned to lean on him. He's the stronger ox in my yoke. But in discipling someone else, I might be called on to be the stronger and let that brother lean on me. I can't get frustrated when he fails. In the beginning, it may be you seeking him out and holding him accountable and carrying the bigger share of the load. You can't get discouraged when he shows his immaturity or his carnality, when he shuns you or even backslides on the Lord. You've got to recall it takes time for a spiritual babe to mature and to become steady. In today's society, we expect everything to be instant, don't we? We have very little patience for downloading the app. Why is this taking so long? Or waiting in the drive-thru, or syncing the playlist, or brewing our coffee, or cooking in the microwave. And God forbid if expedited delivery isn't available and we have to wait a whole week for it to come. I mean, we want it right now. But spiritual growth doesn't work that way. It takes time for folks to grow and mature spiritually. We need patience with each other, and we need patience with ourselves. When it comes to discipleship, there's no pill to pop. There's no laser surgery or instant fix. Discipleship requires a word that sounds a lot like it. Discipline. Even in our day, suffering and hardship are still God's preferred methods for strengthening faith and for building character. You know, making disciples is a lot like rearing children. It requires ample amounts of patience and sacrifice and stick-to-itness to raise a kid. I mean, you don't bring a baby home from the hospital, then leave it alone for the next two weeks. Okay, kiddo, your parents need to go out of town now. There's a bottle in the fridge if you get hungry, and there's some diapers in the bedroom if you need a change. It's all on you now. You don't say that to a child. To that baby, he or she won't survive unless you're there nurturing them every step of the way. And you know the same is true with new believers. They need immediate care and nurturing and accountability. And this is why it takes serious commitment to make disciples. There needs to be access and accountability and then activity. If you want to disciple a brother in the Lord, you've got to be involved and active. It begins by opening your mouth and becoming outspoken about your faith. I heard the story about a businessman who responded to the altar call one night. He was at a Billy Graham crusade. He gave his life to Christ. He got saved that evening. The next Sunday, he went to a local church. Well, after the service, he walked up to one of the leading elders in this church, a man that he happened to know from business. He told him, he said, I wanted you to know last night I gave my life to Christ. This elder was overjoyed. He said, I heard that. I'm so happy for you. The man asked him, he said, how long have we been doing business together? 
the elder sort of figured it up on his fingers, you know. He said, well, I imagine we've known each other for 20 years now. The new convert asked him again, he says, and have you known Jesus as your Savior and Lord all that time? The elder replied, yes, I have. And that's when the new believer responded, well, I don't recall you ever speaking to me about Jesus. In fact, I thought so highly of you, I felt if anyone could be as fine a man as you and not be a Christian, then I didn't have to be a Christian either. What a story. The man's silence about his faith had been misinterpreted as a lack of faith. God calls us to be active, not passive, in regards to our faith and our convictions. Do the people around you know where you stand? Whether it's our witness to the world or our efforts to disciple other believers, we all need to become more outspoken. We definitely need to go on the record regarding our faith. You know, Christians are more like the cops in uniform than the secret agents or the undercover Christians. We need to be active and plain spoken when it comes to our faith in Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes of how he discipled the believers there in Thessalonica. He said, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. Notice Paul uses the analogy of a father with his child. He said, I treated you like my own kids. I taught you and I encouraged you and I challenged you. Paul was actively involved in their spiritual growth. In a spiritual sense, Paul parented the younger believers. And this is what discipleship looks like. We need spiritual parents to take an interest in us. When you come to Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, do you come hoping someone pays attention to you? Or are you looking for someone who needs your attention? Do you look to serve or do you look to be served? There's a poem I love. I've quoted it before. You've heard it many times. But I can't improve on it. It sums up the life of a spiritual parent. An old man traveling a lone highway came at evening cold and gray to a chasm deep and wide. The old man crossed in twilight dim, for the rushing stream held no fears in him. But he turned when he reached the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, cried a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength building here. Your journey will end with the ending day and never again pass this way. You've crossed this chasm deep and wide. Why build a bridge at evening tide? Well, good friend, on the path I've come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet will pass this way. This stream, which has been as nothing to me, to that fair-haired boy may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building this bridge for him. Spiritual fathers take the time and go out of their way to build bridges for younger believers to follow. Listen, this church will will not grow. It will not mature. It will not go any further than the men of our church take it. Are we willing to be parents, to be fathers ourselves, and build bridges for younger believers to cross? 
Here's what needs to happen at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. We need relationships where men are being discipled, where there's accessibility to each other, accountability among each other, and activity toward each other. Men, God doesn't bless us and teach us and grow us in Christ just to have us sit on the shelf without being used. A big part of being a disciple is making disciples. For some of us, we've been learning and learning and learning and growing and growing and growing. Don't you think it's time to do something with what we've learned? Don't you think it's time for the learner to also become a teacher? I believe it's time for some of you to take that step. Jesus calls us to be disciples, not disposals. We're not just decisions, and we're certainly not disposals. Jesus wants us to be and make disciples. If you've been a Christian for a while, and if you've dried up spiritually, if you've grown stale and stagnant in your faith, this could be the problem. You're taking in more than you're giving out. You're a disciple who's not discipling. You know, you can go to the southern tip of Israel and there dip your feet into the Dead Sea. And no fish will nibble on your toes. Why? Because the Dead Sea is dead. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Water flows in, but it never flows out. And where there's inflow without outflow, it produces a deadness. It's true of seas and of people. Spiritual health requires that we give out as well as take in. I've met Christians who experience this kind of stagnation and boredom. And how do they respond? Oh, they conclude that they need a new church. Or they need to chase some new experience to fill their em em emptiness. When in reality, the problem is simple. They're not making disciples. They become a disposal rather than a disciple. When we settle into a selfish existence, we dry up. What keeps the truths of Christianity fresh and exciting in us is when we share those truths with another believer. You know, for a long time, I loved football. Matter of fact, you can kind of divide my life up into three, three eras. There was a time when I played football. I loved football. I cheered and followed my favorite football teams. Epoch one of Sandy's life. Then for a long time, I lost interest. I could have cared less about football. For a decade or more, I didn't know who was playing that weekend. But then, Epoch 3, I fell in love with football again. And do you know how it happened? My son began to play. Here's one of my favorite photos. If this place started burning down, I'd run into my office and I'd try to save that photo. It's one of my favorite photos. That's me coaching from the sidelines, and right over my shoulder is Nick taking a handoff that he ran for a touchdown. It's an incredible photo for me. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget my son's first football practice. The smells and the freshly cut grass and the sound of pads popping. 
in the adrenaline associated with football. It all came rushing back. I was hooked from day one. I got re-excited about playing football because I experienced its thrills through my son. And if you want to recapture the thrill of your salvation, the joy of your salvation, and the thrill of your relationship with God, then let me challenge you to relive it all over again through the eyes of a younger believer. Give away your experience and your knowledge. Disciple a younger believer in Christ. And all that joy you once experienced will come rushing back, I guarantee you. Don't just be a decision for Christ. Don't only be a disposal of godly knowledge. Be a disciple. And even better, be a disciple who's making disciples. When it comes to this matter of discipleship, Jesus has two priorities. He wants us to be one, and he wants us to make one. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.